you will take your Bibles today and turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We continue our study from the Gospel of Mark. A message today entitled, When Jesus Comes to Church. If you found Mark chapter 11, we're going to read a few verses. Let's stand together if you can. We'll read one verse. Verse 11 says, And he, that's Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Now, I'm going to remind you from our message last week, he came in on the back of a donkey. He came in on what we call the triumphal entry. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now skip down to verse 15 in your Bible. And when they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, as, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teachings. And when the evening came, they, that's Jesus and his disciples, went out of the city. Let's pray together. Father, we ask today that you will open this portion of your word and speak a word into our hearts. We pray that the picture of what our Lord Jesus did that day in the temple will be a picture that's very alive for us today. In your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In his book, When God Comes to Church, Dr. Steve Gaines used to be pastor at First Gardendale, now at Bellevue in Memphis. He relays a story of when he was in college. He talks about how he attended church one night and the pastor got up as pastors do on Wednesday night and he said, Our spring revival service starts in a week and a half. We want people to come to know Jesus. We want people to be saved. So let's make sure we make a list of all the people who need to come to know Jesus at that meeting. And so he turned to his chalkboard. Do you remember those days on Wednesday night when the pastor had a chalkboard? He turned to his chalkboard, and one lady mentioned her neighbor, and they wrote down that neighbor's name. Uh, another person mentioned his brother-in-law, and they wrote down his name. And it went on four or five, and then Steve said, I raised my hand and said, Pastor, let's pray that God shows up at revival. As Steve relates the story, it was kind of an awkward nervousness around the group until the lead deacon said, well, surely God's going to be here, as if maybe to straighten things out. I ask you, have you been in that service where God was so present you could touch him? I understand that we've been taught for years that where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, there he is in the midst, and we, uh, we ascribe that to public worship. But if you look in the Scripture, that, script, that particular passage comes in Matthew 18 as it's talking about church discipline. When you, when you gather two or three to begin this process, God was there in the midst. 
But no doubt, Jesus says he will never leave us and forsake us. He gives us the comforter, and he comes to where we are. But listen, folks, have you ever been in that service? Maybe like a last Sunday night, teenagers, where you could really sense and touch the presence of God. Have you ever been in those services where you didn't feel like God could be found? You knew he was there theologically. You knew he was there in Scripture. But somehow it didn't equate to touching you at your deepest sense. Do you know what happens when Jesus shows up in a manifest way? Please listen. Life change occurs. Verse 11 we look at verse 11. We, we read that Jesus entered the Jerusalem. He came in on a donkey. He came in what we call the triumphant entry. We know that he went into the temple just to take a look around. He came in to look around to expecting things, see how things measured up. And then today, that would have been on Sunday when he took the look around, and on Monday he walked back in to straighten up. I dare say to you that when Jesus walks into anywhere, when he walks into anywhere, when he's in the house, some things happen. And I want to suggest four or five things to you today. I think I have four in the back of your bulletin. When Jesus comes to church, what happens? First of all, he recognizes the condition. He recognizes the condition. Every time Jesus comes into any place, any life, any heart, he is adept at recognizing the way things are. We can try to hide it from him. We can act like all holy, holy, but I'm going to tell you his eyes of fire recognize what's going on. You see, he's, he knows. It's kind of like parents of young children or maybe parents who had one, young children at one time. You have come to recognize sickness. They start getting a runny nose, their eyes are watering, they get a cough. It's one thing, but when a fever comes, that's something entirely different. We've come to recognize it because we've seen it. You see, Jesus recognizes the condition wherever he goes. He entered the town on the donkey, he went into the temple, and all he did in the temple on that Sunday was just take a look around. And it seems to this pastor, as I read this text, that when he took a look around, he really didn't like what he saw. What he really wanted to see, he wanted to see the authentic worship of God. He wanted to see the authentic prayers to God. He wanted to see us honoring God in the temple. And he didn't see it like what he saw in all. In fact, what he saw in the temple were a bunch of salesmen. Now, in fairness and balance, the leaders of the temple had kind of put this into place. Now, you understand about the Passover, you understand, depending on who you read, that it was about seven days, you understand that people came from all around, and I don't want to get into a history lesson, this is not a history sermon, but they came and they were celebrating the Passover of the death angel back in Egypt when they put the, when they killed the lambs and put the blood on the doorpost, and so they came back to Jerusalem. Josephus suggests two to three million of them at this time would come to Jerusalem and they'd come for the purpose of worship, both public as a family and both private as a family and public as a people. And they would sacrifice lambs and sheep. And if they could not afford lambs and sheep, they would bring doves. And so in the temple, the temple leaders had determined that let us make it easier for them to sacrifice. Does that sound strange to anybody but me? How do you make it easy 
to sacrifice. Another story for another time. So what they did to make it easy to sacrifice, they had these businessmen that were licensed by the temple. Some of them would sell sheep and goat maybe, and some of them would sell bird for those folks who couldn't, uh, does for those who couldn't afford the sheep and the goat. And they set them up probably in the Gentile section of the temple to do business, to transact business. But, oh, that wasn't enough. If you were going to do business in the temple, you couldn't use common man money. You had to use temple script. Watch how corrupt this gets. In fact, I will just give you a, a, for instance, if you've ever been on a cruise, try to walk up to one of the vendors on the ship and buy something with money. Exactly. You can't do it. What you've got to do is you've got to go to the money changers. You've got to buy the script for the, for the cruise and pay that way. Well, here's what happened in the temple. The, the leaders thought, well, we're selling animals and we're getting a cut of that, so that's increasing our income. And so now if we use temple script, we can get another cut of the money another way. And so the money changers were there to change the ordinary, ordinary money into temple script, and they were charging absorbent exchange rates. And so the temple was getting rich on the backs of the people with something as sacred as sacrifice. Jesus walked in and he identified the corruption. He knew the condition. He saw what it was. I'll suggest two things to you. When he came in and saw what was going on, it made made him angry and it broke his heart. Because he saw the sin and the wickedness in the very house of God. And it moved him to action. Let's just put a pause there. If I don't have your eyes, could I? Jesus walks into our hearts every day. And he walks looking to and fro. And he recognizes the corruption. He recognizes the wickedness. He recognizes the selfishness. He recognizes the sin. Because, and he knows clearly our condition. He knows whether we're good or bad, or whether we're right or wrong, whether we're saved or lost, or whether we're righteous or corrupt. He knows. He walks into the church, and he knows. You may be able to hide it from the preacher, the deacons, your Sunday school teacher, the people who sit beside of you on the pew, but you can't hide it from him. He recognizes the condition. The second thing I see in this story is not only does he recognize the condition, but then he moves to action and he removes the corruption. He removes the corruption. Boy, you take a look at this. And you see that on that Monday when he came back in, he went directly to the temple and he began to to move everybody out. He began to overturn tables. He began to run out people, began to overturn seats. And then then not only that, he changed how the temple would act. He would not even let them carry things that they shouldn't be carrying through the temple. You say, Brother Jerry, Jesus really do that. Could he do that? Don't you know Jews and their money? You can't separate them from their money. Watch this. I want everybody to hear this today. Jesus was totally God, but I want to just tell you something. He was the man. He was raised a carpenter. 
Today we think he was just this sissy. We, we, have, we have him confused that he was always the manger in the, in, manger, in the manger in Bethlehem, that little baby, that he always was just a lamb. But let me tell you something. Jesus was a physical specimen. Brother Jerry, how do you know that? Well, just history, just the Bible will tell you. He was a carpenter. I know this is going to shock you, but they didn't have any electric saws when Jesus was cutting trees. They didn't have any gas chainsaws when Jesus was cutting trees. They didn't have any hydraulic hooks to pick those trees up and carry them to town when Jesus was cutting trees. He went out there and he pelled the tree and he took the saw with his dad and he sawed the tree into lumber or whatever he needed. Then he picked it up on his back. He might have had a donkey to help him, but he did a lot of carrying and he was a specimen of a man. If he hadn't have been a specimen of a man, he would have died at the scourging post as a opposed to making it all the way to the cross. Men, young men in the student group, don't let anybody lie to you and tell you that Jesus was a sissy. Jesus took everything this world had, had to hand out, and he stood up against it. But he comes in there, and can you imagine this specimen of a man, probably muscles bulging because he was angry, and from the years of carrying the trees, he had this big body, and he just begins to turn them over. And I'm going to tell you what, you go to uh, any businessman's table, and you start turning over his table, messing up his business, and you'll get a fight on your hands. Nobody fought back with Jesus. You see, he went in, and he used, in his physical part, he threw them out. Dared them to come back. You see, too many people, too many people have a misunderstanding of Jesus. Well, when you read that Jesus, everybody wants to say, Jesus is all for everything. You preachers, y'all just preach against everything. Jesus is all for everything. He's for people. He's for love. He's for hope. And he is. He's for all those things. Listen, Jesus stands for abundant life, for, for eternal life, for, for relationship with God. But you make no mistake about it. He stands against corruption. He stands against evil. He stands against wickedness. He stands against sin. And you see, Jesus is righteousness, and he casts out all wickedness. You get in verse 15. Look at these action terms. As he entered the temple, he began to whew, drive them out. You couldn't lead them out. You couldn't suggest they go out. He came in with, and, and at one, one time when he cleans the temple, he brought a whip. This time he didn't bring a whip. That word means that he expelled them by force. He cast them out. He threw them out. Now, is anybody shocked about Jesus doing something like this? Well, that's not the Jesus I know. Well, listen, when Jesus comes into your life, I want you to hear this. Not when you just walk the aisle or you just pray. When Jesus comes into your life, corruption doesn't stand a chance. He'll take that corruption. He'll cast it. He'll cast it out of God's temple. And it's not an easy excision. The tools of his trade are more violent than you can imagine because the tools of his trade to cast evil out of your life is the blood that he shed on Calvary. You see, folks, 
we don't really care. Let's be honest. In America, we don't really care to hear that Jesus stands strongly, harshly, and fiercely against corruption. But he does. We live in a day and time when Christians have almost become oxymorons. They'll come into the building and they'll gather together and they'll say, yeah, Jesus is against dishonesty until dishonesty strikes our family. Jesus is against immorality until immorality strikes our friends, our family. And we seem to have a vacillating theology, but I want to just say this to you. You can believe that Jesus understands the sin that goes on in and around you and your family and your friends. You can say that. You can even believe that. But one day you're going to change your mind, and then it's going to be too late. For you see, for you see, Jesus removes corruption wherever he finds it. He entered the temple. He saw the condition. He came back, and he removed the corruption. And just when you think, just when you think Jesus is about to to define himself as violence as opposed to uh, uh, godly teaching and leading us to the Lord, the third thing happens. He reminds us about consecration. He reminds us about consecration. Now, get the picture. Get the picture. Jesus saw what was going on in the building, he, and, and he didn't like it. He came in, and he cast out all evil. So now it's time. Now it's time to start preaching against evil, right? Now it's time to start calling a sin a sin. It's, now it's time to call a spade a spade. But you know what he does? Now he just reminds them. He said, doesn't the Bible read, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Listen. He carried us back to the very roots. We miss God. You know how we miss God? Through lack of prayer. He don't touch our lives. You know how he don't touch our lives? Because we're not spending time in prayer. Truth is, the truth is, there is not a more needed, a more needed, more apropos teaching today than reminding us about the most important thing in our life, and that is prayer. The spiritual walk that you have, the collective spiritual walk that we have as a church will never rise above the level of our prayer life. I want to just give a testimony, and I don't want to put the teenagers on the spot, but the, the, those who have been going on trips with Brother David for a while know that the pastor tries, tries his best to make it by before they go on a trip every time. When they went on their trip... Uh, Last weekend, on Friday afternoon, we were tied up with doctor's appointments, so I didn't get to, to be there to see them. But you know what it spurred me to do, guys? It spurred me to pray. I prayed for you before I left, before y'all left. I got up on Saturday morning still regretting not being able to see you before you left and 
prayed for you Saturday morning, and it just stayed with me all weekend long, and I prayed for you the whole way. Brother David and I didn't get to see each other on Monday, but one of your leaders came by and started talking about the things that God had done and how he touched you. Now, that doesn't go to how good the preacher's prayer life is. I want to tell you what that goes to. That goes to what a great God we serve. We have not because we ask not. And when we ask, he will respond. Well, Brother Jerry, you know, we're a church that prays. we got a prayer room and two prayer meetings uh, a week. That's great. But I want to say this to you. There is, diff- there is a great difference in a church that prays and a praying church. There is a great difference in a believer that prays and a praying believer. One you just do when you think about it. The other one, it becomes a part of your life. And Jesus calls this prayer to be our consecration, the way that we're consecrated to him, the way we're given to him, the way we we are his, being sold out, dedicated, committed to him. Dear folks, when you read this story, when you read this story, you know Jesus, when he comes to church, and when he comes into your life, he recognizes where you are. He recognizes your condition. And then when he, when he gets there and he gets, he gets in, he will remove your corruption and remind you about the consecration toward the Father. I wish it was all good. I wish if you took the step toward the Lord, let him remove the corruption, remind you about consecration. I wish it was all good. But I want to tell you this fourth thing. When Jesus removed the corruption, started teaching he received criticism. And this wasn't just a little criticism. This was much criticism. In fact, if you read the scripture there in verse 18, you'll discover that the very ones who should have been supporting him, the ones who should have been his ardent supporters, were the ones who were opposing him. They became so critical. They become so outraged. They become so opposing. They became so incensed that they wanted to kill him. Do not be deceived. Standing against ungodliness, standing against unrighteousness, standing against wickedness is never popular and will always receive criticism. I wonder how differently the Gospels would have played out if the the Pharisees the chief priests and the scribes would have a discovered Jesus instead of opposed Jesus. How different is it when you get on board with what God's trying to do? Told you this story not too far in the past. I heard a story. I heard this story from the president of Southeast Bible College. He told about a young man that went to pastor a church. Was there for six months. When he came to the church. They said, well, we want to reach people for Christ. And so for six months, they baptized people left and right. And after six months, the deacons informed him that he would no longer be pastor. And he said, why? He said, because we've got too many people here. I read another story of another pastor who went to a church. It was a very troubled church. Every time, he, every time he tried to make a correction, a spiritual correction in the church, he was met with such rank opposition that ultimately he left that church and as I recall was so emotionally and spiritually devastated he never served again make no mistake when you stand against corruption as an individual or as a church 
when you do like Jesus did, when you respond like he did, you will receive criticism. And the reason is this old world hates, hates the church. Jesus said they hated me. What do you think they're going to do for you? This old world hates righteousness, and this old world loves corruption. You want to be popular? You try to dispense love like the world says. But when you dispense God's love and you call sin and corruption, sin and corruption. When you call sin, sin. You call corruption, corruption. When you call evil, evil. And you take a stand against it, the opposition is going to come. But you make no mistake when Jesus is in the house, and that is either in this building or in this temple. When Jesus is in the house, he'll deal with the corruption. He'll call for the consecration. And you can bank on it. The criticism will come. As I read this text, and maybe I'd take a step back. Have you ever done that? Read something just kind of taking a step back? I see these people as having a distinct definite and yet disturbing personal encounter with Jesus. I read down verse 19. It seems to be a footlog, a footnote in the story, epilogue. It says, And when evening came, they, Jesus and his disciples, went out of the city, probably back to Bethany to spend the night. And I wonder... I wonder if this is a picture of how Jesus comes to a church or to a person in a manifest way. And he does his work to clean them up and cast out corruption, but they really, really don't want it done. And so instead of leaving his manifest presence and staying for the night, he leaves. Oh, yeah, his spirit's still there to try to help. But I wonder if his manifest presence are withdrawn. I see in the church people come to church to worship, to Bible study. God's speaking to them, trying to call them, trying to clean them, trying to restart them. And they are so full of themselves and their arrogance and their hard-heartedness that he can't change them. They refuse to let him change them. Oh, yeah, he, he's God. He could force you. Can you just, outside of Saul of Tarsus, I can't think of one person God's thrown to the ground and forced to become a believer. That's not his general way he works. He lays it out. He's there and he gives us a chance, an opportunity to receive him. How many people walk away harder than when they came because they don't like the claims and demands of Jesus? But for those who will hear, for those who will listen, Jesus can restore your heart can we restore your relationship with the Father in heaven? 
He will be your friend through life. When struggles come, He will raise you to such spiritual awareness that you'll know He's there with you. I close with this thought. It's not on your bulletin. But if you'll let Him realize that He recognizes your condition, that He'll remove your corruption if you let Him in. And He will indeed remind you about your consecration to God. He'll renew your commitment if you'll let him. Let's pray together.